Amen and amen. Well, if you would take your copy of the Word of God, please, and turn with me in your copy of the Word to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to read the first 18 verses this evening. And actually, let's begin chapter 18, verse 41, and we'll read through chapter 19, verse 18. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. Remember, the fire had just fallen upon um, Elijah's drenched sacrifice, and he had slaughtered the prophets of Baal. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. At the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's 18 miles. And Ahab took Jezebel all Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go, 
out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahulah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I've had a, an unusual experience this week uh, wrestling with this passage. I feel a bit like a spiritual schizophrenic, which is the last thing that you want to feel when you're preaching. Um, I've been in two minds, and I know schizophrenia it isn't really two minds. It's a different, I know, but bear with me. Uh, but I've kind of been in two minds reading this text, and it hasn't got any better all week. It's probably the first time this ever happened, actually, in preaching. There was one time before when I preached, when I stood in the pulpit and read the text and realized I completely misread the text all week and had completely the wrong sermon. That was pretty distressing, but at least I knew what to say with confidence. Um, this evening, I've been wrestling with this all week. Um, the majority of the commentators, A.W. Pink, Matthew Henry, the whole, you know, go down the list, Phil Riken, they see this as an, as, a, as an evidence of Elijah burning out, that the best of men are men at the best, that Elijah is not Jesus, and he has a fainting fit of faith. He, his faith collapses. He turns tail and runs, and, and that's where I've settled. The, the one major lone voice Against that interpretation of this passage is Dr. Dale Ralph Davis, my Old Testament professor at seminary, who was, don't tell Dr. Thomas, but he was probably my favorite professor at Old Testament in RTS. It was a close-run thing. Derek was my pastor back in Northern Ireland, and I learned pretty much everything I've ever learned about preaching, listening to him, I'm indebted to him. But Ralph Davis totally transformed the way I read the Old Testament. His Exegesis was like a Terry's chocolate orange, which will mean nothing to you impoverished Americans. But the, the, the Terry's chocolate orange 
was a gift you tended to get at Christmas time when I was a little boy. They were expensive, but they were chocolate oranges, as you might imagine. And um, the chocolate was just creamy milk chocolate with this delightful tint of orange to it. It was gorgeous. And you'd take it out, and it was in pieces like an orange, and you'd tap it, and it would fall apart into the various pieces, and then you could eat it. And it was just wonderful. If you ever go to Britain, buy a cherry chocolate orange, and you'll know what I mean. And um, that's actually a common illustration in British pulpits. The passage opened up like a Terry's chocolate orange. You just tap it, and it falls apart. And with, with Ralph Davis, when you read any of his commentaries, that's the way it is. He, he just opens up a passage, and it's just incredible. And you think, oh. and I always read him last, because if I read him first, his, his explanation will be so good, I'll have no, absolutely no original thoughts of my own to share at all, even if they were worth hearing. And Dr. Davis, actually, when he reads this passage, he sees Elijah as entirely the hero of this passage. He sees none of this as a rebuke to Elijah, and he has a long explanation for that. Um, He points out a number of things, all of which are legitimate, right? Uh, When the text says, then he was afraid, um, that's actually not the verb that um, the Bible uses. The Hebrew verb in the Masoretic text is, when Elijah saw this, he arose and ran for his life. Now, in fairness to our English translators, the Hebrew verb for see and the Hebrew verb for fear are spelt exactly the same way in the unpointed Hebrew. Um, So, maybe we shouldn't see Elijah here being frightened and turning tail. In defense, though, of the English translation, the Septuagint, which is an ancient translation um, translated about 300 years before the time of Christ, it was the NIV in Christ's time, it has the translation fear, um, as does a Syriac translation and Jerome's Latin Vulgate. All take those as, take this word as, Elijah was afraid. So, did Elijah see what Jezebel was about to do, i.e., kill him, or was Elijah frightened? It's a legitimate question. And Ralph Davis says he's 60% sure the verb actually is see and not fear. And, and who am I to argue with Dr. Davis? Then notice Elijah's journey. He runs 90 miles down to Beersheba, which is in Judah. Now, most of the commentators understand Elijah's running as trying to escape Jezebel. Um, which makes sense to me because the text says he ran for his life. And Jezebel just said, I'm going to kill you before the clock strikes this time tomorrow. And so when Elijah runs for his life, it seems to me that's why he was running. But um, Dr. Davis points out, which is also true, if Elijah had wanted to escape Jezebel, Beersheba was quite far enough. That'd be like during the Civil War, running away from the Yankees in Washington and running to Jackson, Mississippi. You'd gone far enough. You were outside of the Yankees' jurisdiction, at least during the Civil War, and they couldn't get their grubby hands on you. And likewise, Ralph Davis would say, in running to Beersheba, Elijah was quite… his only posture was concerned to escape Jezebel, he had run quite far enough, which is true, apart from the fact that Athaliah was married to Jehoram in the south at this time. And Athaliah, if you remember, was was the daughter of Jezebel and Jehoram, and she made it her mission to exterminate Christmas and all of the descendants of um, 
um, David. So Elijah wasn't as safe in Beersheba as you might first have thought, but still he wasn't anymore under the direct jurisdiction of Ahab and uh, Aunt Jezze. So that's also true. Then Ralph Davis points out as well, uh, which is also true, that when the, the angel of the Lord appears to Elijah at the broom tree, he says to him, Arise and eat, verse 7, for the journey is too great for you. Now, that seem, that's interesting. That seems to suggest that Elijah is going somewhere, that Elijah, hasn't got, he, Elijah knows he hasn't reached the end of the journey in Beersheba, and that God also knows that Elijah hasn't got to where he's intending to go, and he's still got a ways more to go, and that ways more is like almost 800 miles to get down to Sinai or Mount Horeb, as it's described in this passage. And so, thus the explanation for the food, the journey is too great for you, and then when he eats the food, he arises, eats and drinks, and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God right? Which is Mount Sinai. Now, why would, Mount, why would Elijah go to Mount Sinai? And the answer that Dr. Davis gives, and many others give as well, is that he was going there to bring a covenant lawsuit to God. You remember Mount Horeb was the place where God gave the law to Moses, a law that threatened curses against disobedience. And Elijah's going there, commentators say, and I think there's there's in part truth to this, Elijah is going there to, to basically say, God, you said you would curse Israel if they didn't repent. They haven't repented, and so make good on your promise. And so, rather than kind of whiny uh, teenage uh, Elijah, um, the commentators who see Elijah positive here, when he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Um, You know, one of the things about the Bible is you can't hear the tone of voice. Is Elijah saying that matter-of-factly? This is what's happened. Now, do your thing, Lord, and deal with these people. Or is Elijah more kind of self-righteous, self-pitying, you know, is he whining? And it's hard to say, reading the text. And even when God says on those two occasions, what are you doing here, Elijah? What tone of voice does God use? Like, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or, what are you doing here, Elijah? Like, what's, what's up? Like, what? what, what you know, it, you can't hear God's tone of voice, so it's not entirely clear if it's a gentle rebuke or is it a comforting arm around the shoulder of a, of a, of a discouraged servant and kind of cheering him up. And um, God asks the question twice, and Elijah, true to form, gives the answer twice, verbatim. It's evidently been a speech he's been practicing, a bit like the prodigal son, you know. <laughs> I've sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer worthy to call you. Take me back as one of your hired servants, and so forth, and so on. And um, so, is this, is this entirely positive about Elijah, um, that Elijah is not frightened? He's not running for his life in a sense, in a fearful sense. 
He just doesn't want to be murdered. God can kill him if he wants, but he doesn't want Jehu to, or, um, Jezebel to kill him because that would be shameful to God, uh, some commentators say. And so Elijah's running to make covenant lawsuit to um, Jehovah. And Jehovah is making good and saying, yes, we're going to use Hazael, Jehu, and so forth to punish the house of Ahab and Jezebel. Which is it? And when I read this passage, and I've been going back and forth all week, because I'm very hesitant to go against my learned brother, Dr. Davis, I just can't get past the sense that the feel of this passage is that Elijah has kind of collapsed. Um, as Jim says, he's a man of like passions as we are. He's a human being, right? He's a great servant of God, um, but he's also prone to what some people call faith's fainting fits. And so, we're going to look at this passage tonight uh, briefly under the title of The Causes and the cures of um, spiritual depression, the causes and the cures of spiritual depression. It's a common problem. One pastor, Don Baker, in his book, um, Depression, Finding Hope and Meaning in Life's Dark Shadow, he says this, I could preach with fervor and power. I could share Christ with enthusiasm and success I would counsel with meaningful insight and socialize with sheer delight, but without warning, any or all of these positive and delightful emotions would suddenly be forced to give way to feelings of gloom and periods of weakness. I would withdraw, and a form of paranoia would settle in. I would suddenly be overwhelmed with feelings of inadequacy and inferiority. On occasion, I toyed with thoughts of self-destruction. The struggle reached its inevitable climax— when I find myself too weary to minister, too filled with hostility to love, and too frightened to preach. And I have felt similar thoughts in various times of my ministry as well. It's, it, it's amazing how well things can seem to be going outwardly, and yet how badly you can be feeling inwardly. Spiritual depression can attack the best and the worst of God's servants. You should read um, Paul David Tripp's wonderful little book, A Dangerous Calling, as he, he recounts his own ministry as a counselor, a, 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 a pastor to pastors, you might say, and how he sees ministers, even in large, prosperous churches, growing ministries, suddenly stand up in the pulpit and say, I'm done, and just walk out before they even preach the sermon. And the elders are going, what just happened? And everyone's going, what just happened? And it was the fact that the pastor, the best of men are men at the best, and he just had a kind of is he'd been pushing and pushing and pushing, and nobody knew, and then suddenly it all collapsed, and wham, bam, thank you, man. And so, it's a, it, it's a helpful reminder as a book to pray for Kai, pray for me, pray for all the pastors you know that the Lord would uh, draw near and keep us kept, and that we would have um, a band of brothers around us praying for us and encouraging us in those low points whenever um, things are going much worse in private than they seem to be doing in public. So, looking at this passage then under that heading, let's think quickly about the causes of spiritual depression. 
Um, spiritual depression often begins after a long time of spiritual faithfulness. Eliza, Elijah goes from um, public ecstasy to private agony, and he does so in a heartbeat. This is the guy, I mean, just look back at the previous chapters. This is the guy who had confronted King Ahab in chapter 17, this big, strong king. And this little prophet comes up and says, it's not going to rain until I say it will rain. And he did that not on the basis of some supernatural word from God. He just simply read in Deuteronomy, you remember, it was after this act of faith and God's written word, but the supernatural word came afresh to Elijah. He'd been reading in Deuteronomy, and he'd read that God swore that if his people forsook him, he would send a time of drought. And Elijah said, okay. And he went to the king, and simply on the basis of God's written word, it's not going to rain until I say so. And it didn't rain. And it was after that the supernatural word of God came to Elijah and told him to go to the brook Cherith, where he was fed day and night by these ravens. Then he's moved to the widow of Zarephath and sees God's miraculous provision there, providing every day in the fresh provision of just enough flour and just enough oil to make the pancakes for breakfast. Then her son dies, and Elijah stretches himself out in this boy three times, and God restores him to life, resurrection from the dead, an incredible act of faith and answer to prayer. And then, of course, the showdown on Mount Carmel, uh, when Elijah confronts Ahab with courage and confidence, sure of God. And it's interesting, as, as, you, as you read this um, confrontation with uh, Ahab on the prophets on, on, on Mount um, Carmel, the, the very epicenter of Baal's power, it's clear to me that I think Elijah in his prayer to God, we already see uh, the beginnings of his spiritual depression. We'll come back to this again in a second. As he's praying to God there, and he says, answer, O Lord, in verse 37 of chapter 18, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell. It's clear that Elijah saw this as a decisive moment in the spiritual history of the northern kingdom of Israel. I believe that when God answered his prayer and sent the fire down upon the sacrifice, as we heard last week, that Elijah really believed that this would be a moment when God turned the hearts of all of Israel back to him from the top to the bottom. When Elijah runs ahead of Ahab's chariot, one commentator says he's acting as Ahab's footman. The, the king would have servants running ahead of the chariot. And um, could it be that Elijah was confident this would, this would actually be a decisive work of reformation in Ahab's life? And he runs back ostensibly as one of, servant, of one of Ahab's servants. A new day has dawned in Israel, and all of that is about all of those expectations are about to come uh, crashing down around his uh, feet. But often spiritual depression can come to God's great servants just after they've done their greatest work. And remember that. You know, just because Kyle teaches some of the best Sunday school lessons you'll hear anywhere on the continental United States of America. Just because the Lord 
happens to help me at times preach sermons that seem to come with some sense of power and encouragement to the congregation, doesn't mean that we aren't capable the next moment of falling flat on our faces. We need you to pray for us every day, not just on our worst days when we're obviously struggling, but on our best days when we're doing our best ministry and enjoying our best success. We, are, we, we dangle by threads of mercy when we're weak and when we're strong, and we need God to hold us up. And if God takes His hand away from us, there is no limit to how far or how fast we can fall. So, spiritual depression often comes after a long time of spiritual faithfulness. It tends to come to you when people are big and God is small. It's amazing. When, when Ahab goes back to Jezebel, he tells her, not all the things that Jehovah has done, which is the obvious takeaway, but all the things that Elijah did. Ahab's got that awful blindness. He can't see God. He only sees man. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. He spoke only of Elijah and not of God. Well, Elijah, when, when Ahab sends message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, Jezebel um, is threatening to kill him. Why didn't she just kill him there and then? Probably because it's kind of, it'd be a politically disastrous to kill Elijah after the fire of heaven fell. Uh, which you just don't do that. But give me 24 hours, and we'll stick a bit of radioactive isotope in your coffee tomorrow morning in your Hotel 6 or Motel 6, whatever it is. Then you can die accidentally on purpose no problem. But you're a dead man in the next 24 hours. And then Elijah was afraid, or he saw what Jezebel was about to do, and he rose and ran for his life. He's running for his life. He's no sense of God towering above Jezebel, this mighty God who sent fire from heaven. And that can happen to the best. One minute he's on Mount Carmel, full of confidence, full of God, full of expectation, full of faith, and the next moment he's lost sight of God, and he is ministering with both feet firmly planted in midair, which is such a comfort because he's just like me and just like you. So strong one minute and so weak the next. And then the third thing about spiritual depression, it comes when people are big and God is small after a long season of spiritual success, it can also come when we, we find ourselves believing half-truths, half-truths about ourselves, half-truths about our trouble, and half-truths about our God. And it seems whenever Elijah is rehearsing to God, um, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He's talking about his zeal, and he's just run away, not because God told him, but he ran for his life. And he's saying, I've been very zealous. He's, in a sense, a little bit, frankly, self-righteous. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That sounds… That, 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 I can't read that as the words of a man full of faith. The, the, human beings are trying to kill me, Elijah says, but this is the God who sent fire down from heaven the day before and just wiped out 450 prophets of Baal. Um, 
it doesn't, he doesn't seem to have any sense of the capacity. The God who destroyed the altar is also capable of saving him. And that does not seem to be trickling down from his thick head into his cold heart at the moment, which again comforts me because I find myself like that often as well. So, the causes of spiritual depression, it often begins after a long time of spiritual faithfulness. It comes whenever we, people are big and God is small in our estimation, and we find ourselves believing half-truths. Somebody asked me after our morning sermon this morning, is it not better for America to have half a gospel than no gospel? And I said, maybe, but a half-truth told as a whole truth quickly ends up being a whole untruth, as J.A. Packer once observed. So, the cure of spiritual depression is twofold one part for the body and one part for the soul. One part for the body. God prescribes treatment for Elijah's body. He gives him rest, and He gives him food. And notice it's the angel of the Lord, um, verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. This is one of those hints in the Old Testament of the Trinity. The angel of Yahweh um, is a strange figure. He's sent by the Lord to walk with Israel through the wilderness. There's a pillar of fire by day and, and sorry, a pillar of fire by night, and a cloud by day, fire by night. But he, so he's sent by the Lord, but he's also on at least a couple of occasions identified as the Lord. He's the same and he's different. Much like the word in John 1, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you see that all over the place. Like if you look um, in Genesis 22, whenever Abraham is on the cusp of offering Isaac, as Abraham reaches out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, verse 10, but the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Right? And the angel of the Lord here is not saying, God told me to tell you this. The angel of the Lord is himself speaking as Jehovah. You have not withheld Isaac from me. You're going to sacrifice him to me, the angel of the Lord. And then again, if you turn forward to Exodus 3 and the famous um, burning bush passage, we're told as, as Moses is, is, is shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, priest of Midian, and he's near Horeb, the mountain of God, Sinai, in verse 2, we're told, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. This apparition in the bush, he said, My name is I Am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That was the angel of the Lord appearing to Moses. So he's both sent by God and yet identified as God. And you have this hint that there's more to God than just one person, strangely enough. 
And so this angel of the Lord here, many commentators now agree with him, is a pre-incarnate revelation of the Lord Jesus. And he comes, and he's no words for the prophet except arise and eat. Elijah needs to sleep, and he needs to eat. He needs rest. And I've been struck by that recently in my own ministry and life. I'm reading a book which I've told some of you about called Why We Sleep. And it's an incredible book. And it, 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 even as a doctor, it blew my mind because every cell in your body, every single cell, your heart, your liver, your kidneys, your skin, your immune system, every single cell, your brain, every single cell in your body is affected for, for the better or for the worse by sleep. The presence of sleep or the lack of sleep. The way you process emotion, the way you sp respond to stress, the whole kit and caboodle is influenced by sleep. And studies show human beings, all human beings, need at least seven to eight hours sleep a night. And if you get less than that, if you, if you get less than six hours sleep a night, for example, your all-cause mortality rate is significantly higher than the rest of the population. And here's Elijah. He just run 18 miles from, from, uh, to, to Jezreel from Carmel. Then he runs 90 miles down to Bathsheba, and he needs rest, and he needs some food, and God feeds him not once but twice at the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has nothing to say to him but, but wake up and eat, and then essentially back to sleep again. And don't, don't neglect um, rest for your body especially as ministers of the Lord, I, for, for many years, I didn't take a day off. I took Saturday with my day off, um, and it took its toll on me. And in the last six months or so, I've gone back taking Mondays off. I read Monday morning, go for a long prayer walk on Monday morning. I do some reading, and um, in the afternoon, do some yard work or whatever, but it's a, it's a day of recuperation. And it's been a balm to my soul, just taking Monday to rest, to stop after the, the labors of the Lord's day, and to... Uh, recreate myself in recreation, you might say. So, treatment for the body. F.B. Meyer says, God's eye followed with tender pity every step of Elijah's flight across the hills of Samaria. He did not love him less than when he stood elated with victory, hard by the burning sacrifice, and his love assumed, if possible, a tenderer, gentle aspect as he stooped over him whilst he slept as a shepherd tracks the wandering sheep from the fool to the wild mountain pass where eagles sailing in narrow circles watch its faltering steps, so did the love of God come upon Elijah as worn in body by long fatigue and in spirit by the fierce war of passion he lay and slept under the juniper tree. Or as Riken says, God has countless means to care for our needs, but his usual practice is to give us what we need in the way we need it most. And at that moment, Elijah needed two meals and two sleeps. And then his treatment for Elijah's soul. Elijah n needs to meet God. And God comes down in this pyrotechnic display that is impressive. God comes to be felt, and then He comes to be heard. The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. 
but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So you've got the wind and the earthquake and the fire, these very palpable expressions of what you might expect to be the presence of God. But God wasn't in these things. What God was in and where God, or where Elijah met God was in the still, small voice for his marching orders. And there are a number of things we could say here. You can go and you can look in the commentators and, and notice the parallels between Moses and Elijah, and they are many, not least the fact that they met God in the cleft of the rock or the cave here. It's not just a cave, it's the cave. Davis thinks, I think correctly, this was the cave that Moses met God in. But parallels of Moses comes down from the mountain and meets the idolatrous people. Elijah's just met the idolatrous people. He runs to the mountain. It's the same mountain and the same God, and God comes down. And like on Sinai, there's fire and there's wind and there's earthquake and there's much terror, and yet God is in none of those things. He's not in those impressive outward manifestations of what you would imagine to be vintage Yahweh, but he comes in a still, small, whispering voice. And as he does, he reminds Elijah that, 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 that his work is not always done impressively. God is not often the God of far from heaven. God is much more commonly seen to be working behind the scenes with a still, small voice, orchestrating events, moving history, and speaking to His people. And it's in that still, small voice that the Lord speaks to Elijah, "'Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Assyria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel.'" And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel Mahula, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What's God saying here? He's saying here, I have a plan to deal with Ahab, and I have a plan to deal with um, Jezebel. And that plan does not involve their salvation, which I think um, Elijah had been assuming. It involves their judgment. But Elijah had allowed his expectations to outrun the plan of God. And we always get in trouble when that happens, don't we? And God's reminding him, no, I have a plan, and I have a purpose, and I will um, I have not abandoned this plan or this purpose, and I have not failed. And by the way, Elijah, you are not alone. There are still 7,000 in Israel. One commentator says, in response to Elijah's, I am the only one left. God directly counters. What a rebuke for Elijah, even though it's treated only as an afterthought. God does not desire to make a grand display of our inaccurate understandings of reality but he will not altogether allow them to stand uncorrected either. You aren't alone, Elijah. There are 7,000 like you who have not bowed the knee or kissed Elijah. 
2, B. God is still about His business, despite any appearance of the contrary, and His people should be about theirs, Elijah. Arise and go, and do what I tell you. Oh, and by the way, Elijah, even if you were the only one left, and even if they did take your life, you aren't really that important, right? I've got your replacement waiting in the wings, Elisha. And while you're at it, anoint him. And that's always humbling. God's people often um, make too much of God's servant as if the work is entirely dependent upon them and what they're doing. And sometimes God's servants can believe that publicity. And part of the healing process of spiritual discouragement is to remember just how important you really are in the kingdom. And we learn that lesson best on our knees in the presence of God, waiting for the still small voice of His Word to speak with us. And that's one of the things that the Lord has been teaching me recently in my morning prayer walks, is just how refreshing it is to be out uh, with the Word of God in your ears or on your heart, on your tongue, as I've been memorizing Scripture afresh, getting back to that old habit, and praying. And it really is good for the soul to spend unhurried time in the presence of God. When you do that, the devil is only too fast to tell you that you're wasting your time. And of course, you'd be a fool to believe him, but often we do. That's ultimately the answer to our downcast spirits, unhurried time in the presence of God, waiting for His still small voice to bring us fresh words and fresh encouragement and fresh comfort. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, its truth, and its power. We thank You, Father, for the way it encourages us in our moments of discouragement and pray, Father, You'd be for each of us as You were for Elijah, the one who lifts up our head, our glory, and the one who never abandons us, even though we often abandon You. In Christ's name, amen.